Before I start this episode of Dad Is Not An Now, I want to thank again VT Heroes for sponsoring this episode of Dad Is Not An Now. And go out there and support this amazing game, a black-owned creator deck-building fighting card game. They represent different body types, too. Check it out. If you're a fan of Power Rangers and Ultraman, then you're going to love this game. And then also, make sure you subscribe to their YouTube channel, J1 Studio, because this Saturday, they're having an exhibition match for VT Heroes. So all the details will be in the description below. Support J1 Studio. Support VT1 Heroes. So for you, yeah, yo. There will never it matters and even more when you feel like it doesn't Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't Know I'm right alongside you, here but that I'm behind you But always got you, hinder discussion, nothing means more First one to offer his shoulders for what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world until I seen yours And know that I ain't see a better view yet I'm with whatever, so don't ever you fret Know that you covered, not a hurdle or a heartbreak A change will partake, cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway My job is to aware you, fully loaded prepare you for all of the above that I'm never letting get near you but still in all give you every advantage I found couldn't find a better fit for them along with my crown and since the baton was passed hopping down cause feeling's not an option and dad is not a noun not at all White sun corrupted the mind, shriveled the throat. Men broke ranks and made their graves in the sand. What madness had driven them into this desert? General Thomas Alexander Dumas still asked himself that question. Whether incipient ideals of liberty had corralled 50,000 Frenchmen into this ancient land, or merely the blind ambition of their general-in-chief, Napoleon Bonaparte. General Dumas felt the time to rebel, was near. Antoine David de la Paiterie was still hiding. Old debts and familial quarrels had pushed him to the backwater streets of western Saint-Domingue three decades ago. French-born whites like himself and free people of color populated the colony, staked their livelihood in a Haitian soil that so abundantly sprouted coffee beans and sugarcane, the harvesting of which depended on half a million African slaves who lived every day in hell. 12 hours a day under a scalding sun and searing whip. As Europe demanded sweetened tea and powdered pastries, plantation owners found it more profitable to import new slaves than to provide for ones they had already purchased. So here, in Haiti, slaves were simply worked to death. 
Antoine had purchased his slave to be his live-in concubine. Marie Sasset bore him several children over the years. Now, having learned a great family inheritance awaited him in France, Antoine sold her and his daughters to another man. To gain passage to France, he pawned his 13-year-old son, Thomas Alexander, into slavery. The boy never again saw his mother or sisters. After a year of enslavement, Thomas Alexander took his first steps on European soil, a kingdom of winding chateaus and cliffside gardens. His father was eager to mold him into a proper count. Mornings in the academy were reserved for philosophy, literature, mathematics, evenings for horseback riding and swordsmanship. In the latter pursuit, Thomas Alexander trained under the celebrated Chevalier de Saint-Georges, the mixed-race polymath, a royal composer and the finest swordsman in Europe. White students watched with envy as the muscular Thomas Alexander impressed in bouts with St. George. But both teacher and student were losing their footing in high society. The European idea that physical attributes could constitute a race which in turn conferred certain competencies every day crystallized as slavers pushed millions of stolen Africans onto westward ships. Europeans defended their inhumane treatment of Africans by professing their subhumanity. The Black Code had defined French regulations around slavery, how runaway slaves should have their ears removed and hamstrings cut. Now the King of France, Louis XVI, outlawed mixed marriages and mandated that all people of African descent apply for special identification. Still, Thomas Alexander cut a striking figure among the noble class, a powerful six foot one in a time when the average male height was roughly five foot five, the young nobleman reveled in Parisian high life. Paris was a flickering lamppost, carriage rides to the theater, stiff corsets, and powdered wigs. A metropolis of half-starved peasants and horse dung caked into sidewalks. It was here that Thomas Alexander escorted a white woman to the theater, where a naval officer cut in, flirted with his date, and said to Thomas Alexander, In your country they put chains on your feet and on your hands. When he returned an insult, the man's friends tried to force him to kneel and ask for forgiveness. Both men were briefly arrested. Antoine, meanwhile, had developed an obsession with the procurement of fine gems and jewelry. And soon, at over 70 years old, Antoine wed his housekeeper in her early 30s. Thomas Alexander made no effort to attend the ceremony, and Antoine promptly restricted funding to his son's Parisian lifestyle. Thomas Alexander thus set out on another path. troubling force stirred in France. Famine and storm ravaged her peasantry, and the crown, drained from its involvement in the American Revolution, neglected to answer their cries for aid. Rather, King Louis XVI sought to levy a harsh tax on exclusively the common people, whose marginalized representatives forcefully responded by founding their own legislative body. 
In clamorous riots, commoners and aristocrats called for liberty and republicanism, questioned the sanctity of monarchy, and felled the symbols of the old order. The king had little choice but to concede the validity of their legislative assembly. In the heat of revolt, violent opportunists also roamed the countryside, setting ablaze elegant estates and robbing and slaughtering noble and common folk alike. Troops were called to safeguard these lands. Some miles north of Paris, a soldier rode into town, navigating unsteady cobblestone with an upright air of refinement. Though a lowly private, the man who now called himself Alex Dumas guarded his honor with vigilance. He had recently dueled three fellow cavalrymen and defeated them all. His father, Antoine, had died a few weeks after he enlisted. Alex Dumas had hoped to join as an officer, as nobles did, but the color of his skin served to undermine his noble bloodline. In town, Dumas lodged with the innkeeper, Claude Labouret, and his family. In the coming months, he regaled his hosts with courtly manners. Their 20-year-old daughter, Marie-Louise, was infatuated. Long conversations with his hosts revealed a shared enthusiasm for the revolutionary government, which now declared the inalienable rights of all citizens. Dumas eventually asked his host for his daughter's hand in marriage, and Claude Labouret obliged on the condition that Private Dumas obtained at least the rank of sergeant. Ten days later, Dumas left behind his fiancée to continue on the warpath. The revolution was in full swing. Its most vocal devotees endeavored to topple and reconstruct what they viewed as an unjust society. In the succeeding years, the assembly abolished the nobility and forced the clergy to swear allegiance to the state. The king attempted to flee Paris and spark a counter-revolution to restore himself as an absolute monarch. He was recognized and arrested. The people denounced Louis as a traitor, so the legislative decision to allow him to retain his throne in a constitutional monarchy sparked uproar. Dumas and his cavalry stormed into Paris to manage hostile crowds at the Champ de Mars. Here, he witnessed national troops under Marquis de Lafayette open fire on protesters in a massacre. But this irrepressible call for liberty and equality now echoed beyond France. In Saint-Domingue, the island of slaves revolted, mobilizing the very ideals espoused by the French Revolution. But, as in America, a doctrine of liberty had been raised alongside a lucrative tide of racial prejudice, which sought to define precisely who deserved inalienable rights. The legislators of France refused to abolish slavery or bequeath their fruitful Haitian colony. They were presently concerned with the nagging presence of Louis XVI. The king used his remaining authority to block their attempts at radical reform, and Prussia and Austria threatened violence should any harm befall him. The French National Guard responded by storming the king's palace in 1792. They killed his Swiss guards, locked Louis in a dungeon, and abolished the monarchy. The move stoked armed conflict with surrounding kingdoms, who threatened to restore monarchical order in France. 
On these battlefields, Alex Dumas began to make a name for himself in the daring rush of cavalry. He received an invitation from an old friend. Chevalier de Saint-Georges had founded the Black Legion, a free army of black and mixed-race soldiers, and he entrusted Dumas to be his second in command. In daily charges, Dumas cut down enemy troops and took many more prisoner. He often shouldered the de facto command of the Black Legion, as Saint-Georges and the other officers spent much of their time in Paris, boozing and socializing. In time away from the front, Dumas returned to the countryside and at last married Marie-Louise. Only a couple of months later, the latest iteration of the French Parliament voted on the fate of their deposed king. In January of 1793, Louis was publicly beheaded. War continued, but the Black Legion disbanded after the Ministry of War accused Saint-Georges of using government funds to buy horses and sell them for a profit. So Alex Dumas traversed the fronts in leadership posts for the French armies of the North and West Pyrenees. Amidst the frenzy, Dumas found just four days to spend with his newborn daughter, Marie, before riding out again. Civil war ate at France from the inside, and the mighty armies of Europe, Spain, Portugal, Naples, Austria, and Great Britain, harassed its borders. The French National Convention formed the Committee of Public Safety, nine powerful deputies to root out both the foreign and domestic enemies of the revolution at all costs. These leaders of France performed an ongoing self-lobotomy in the name of liberty, an undaunting quest to destroy the persons and symbols of impure tradition. The sleeping kings of old were torn from their tombs, their bones scattered in mass graves. The church and its shattered monuments were usurped by the cult of the supreme being, and time itself was bent to deify the revolution. And every day the blade fell on the necks of seditious men and women. Their heads held aloft as the prized fruit of the revolution. Proof of their sedition mattered little. As one deputy declared, You must punish not only the traitors, but the apathetic as well. You must punish whoever is passive in the republic. The Committee of Public Safety frequently executed unsuccessful French generals in front of their own troops. And in the bitter winter of 1793, the committee delivered Dumas an impossible task. Dumas took command of 50,000 men stationed around the glacial terrain of mont -Senis. As general of the Army of the Alps, he was to drive out the Austrians and Piedmontese and clear the way to spread the revolution eastward. But sinking dunes of snow still blocked the mountain passes, and Dumas bluntly refused to make the assault under current conditions. The Committee of Public Safety made known its dissatisfaction at his delay. The National Convention wants its generals to obey the orders of the committee. You will answer with your head for their implementation. The guillotine casts a shadow on his every move. Still, Alex Dumas maintained faith in the nobler principles of the revolution. France finally abolished slavery, and Dumas addressed his troops. 
I was born in a climate and among men for whom liberty also had charms, and who fought for it first. Sincere lover of liberty and equality, I will be proud to march out before you, and the coalition of tyrants will learn that they are loathed equally by men of all colors. After months of fateful negotiation, Dumas made his assault. A detachment of French troops faced the long and treacherous pass up the mountain, beset by violent winds and enemy spies. They shuffled along ice cliffs that dangled over black chasms. Then, the crack of enemy artillery split the French line. Soldiers tumbled into the abyss, others bled out in snowbanks. As night approached, survivors scaled their way back down the mountain. General Dumas would not abandon the mission so easily. In the coming weeks, his troops captured a key pass and an enemy fort. The enemy still held the summit. French troops, cloaked in white camouflage with iron crampons fixed to their boots, followed closely as General Dumas scaled cliffs of ice. Upon finding the enemy encampments, they raised their bayonets and charged. Dumas took the mountain and a thousand prisoners. He became a national hero, but soon the Committee of Public Safety ordered him to Paris. No reason was given. Perhaps his presence at the Champ de Mars massacre had raised suspicions. At any rate, a sham trial and execution almost assuredly awaited him. He delayed his return, and by the time he arrived in Paris, the committee was collapsing in on itself. Its most fanatical deputies were themselves executed. France effectively abandoned the committee and much of its violent radicalism. Nowhere had their so-called reign of terror been more pronounced than at General Dumas' next posting. The pious French region of Vendée had resisted the revolution, the abolition of their church and forced conscription. Amidst civil war, French national soldiers aimed to exterminate the region's inhabitants. To conserve ammunition, soldiers had organized mass drownings of civilians, priests, nuns, women, and children included. Dumas took control of this army of the West and saw firsthand the victims of its barbarity. Dumas refused to conceal the dark reality perpetrated on behalf of the revolution. He reported that the hellscape was not merely the result of improper training. The evil lies deeper in the spirit of indiscipline and pillage that rules throughout the army, a spirit produced by habit and nourished by impunity. General Dumas significantly reduced war crimes when he replaced officers in mandated training in soldiers' ethics. He quietly returned home to recover and accepted a new post along the Rhine. In a year, his wife gave birth to a second daughter named Louise. He cherished his family time and then ventured east to join the French Army of Italy under its 27-year-old commander-in-chief. Napoleon Bonaparte controlled battlefields with magnetic decisiveness, imbued each victory with a rousing sense of destiny. He had conquered Milan and rebuilt its society on more egalitarian revolutionary principles. Unlike the throngs of Napoleon's acolytes among the French ranks, Alex Dumas felt little admiration for the man. 
to supplement supplies, Napoleon encouraged his soldiers to loot the very towns they claimed to liberate. They robbed impoverished locals and gutted Milan of its precious artifacts. As the French took northern Italy, Dumas publicly clashed with his commander-in-chief. He noted that pillaging often invited the abuse and murder of civilians. He also took offense to Napoleon's right-hand man downplaying his exploits in battle. General Bonaparte finally demoted Dumas, had him tucked away in some cavalry division on the front lines. Dumas then received a grave letter from his wife. He answered back, To the only one I care about in the whole world, my virtuous friend, you have told me about an event that tears away half of my existence. I am still trembling. His 13-month-old daughter Louise was dead. When the soldier's tears dried, he rode out again into the looming Alps. With a lethal sword and trusted musket, he indulged in the anesthesia of battle. The Austrians began to dread the man who hunted them so relentlessly. They called him the Black Devil. To drive the Austrians out of Italy, the French needed to take a bridge which hung over a flowing river by the village of Clausen. Austrians rained down fire on Dumas and his dragoons as they passed through. Dumas spurred his steed and charged the bridge with his aide-de-camp, Dermancourt. Across the bridge, the two found themselves cut off, ambushed. Dermancourt was struck in the shoulder. Austrian snipers fired on the charging Dumas. Bullets met flesh and he tumbled into the dirt. An enemy called out, The Black Devil is dead. In the still of battle, a weary arm rose from behind the fallen horse. Dumas returned fire. The Austrians stormed forward. With saber in hand, Dumas blocked the bridge. He swung with masterful ferocity, pierced and cleaved his challengers, and cast several into the river below. His attackers slashed open his head and thigh, but he refused to fall. At last, French reinforcements sent the Austrians fleeing. As hot blood ran from his wounds, Dumas mounted a horse and chased the enemy into the woods for hours. He and his men took 1,500 prisoners that day. When Napoleon learned of the bridge battle, he hailed Dumas as a hero and promoted him. Napoleon pressed on to cripple Austria and forced them into a peace treaty that ceded vast swaths of land to the Republic. Dumas would return home to his grieving wife and daughter. In 1798, he arrived on the docks of the southern French coast. Napoleon had assembled an invasion force, its mission so swaddled in secrecy that the 50,000 men aboard its warships were themselves ignorant of their destination. Napoleon at last addressed them. Soldiers, the eyes of Europe are upon you. You have a grand destiny to fulfill, battles to fight, dangers and trials to overcome. The genius of liberty that has made the Republic since its birth, the arbiter of Europe, desires that it also be the arbiter of the seas and of the farthest lands. The fleet waded into the Mediterranean, just past the gaze of lurking British warships. Napoleon had meant what he said. He believed fate now presided over this mission. 
As a boy, he had pored over the pages of history and desired to join the pantheon of great conquerors. He wrote, I dreamed of many things, and I saw how I could realize all my dreams. On a starless, gusty night, French longboats careened over violent seas. Dozens of sailors fell overboard, disappeared into black waves. At last, they reached the shores of Alexandria. The people of Egypt had for half a millennia languished under the iron rule of their former European slaves, the Mamluks. Napoleon fashioned himself their liberator. Napoleon had selected Dumas to lead the army's cavalry, but for now General Dumas marched on foot with the others. Horses and artillery would be brought ashore when the seas calmed. The Mamluk rulers panicked upon seeing the invasion force. With rifle in hand, Dumas led a contingent of troops over the walls. Within a day, the city fell under French control. The Golden Age of Alexandria had long since passed. Its derelict cityscape failed to meet the French demand for horses and supplies. Napoleon nonetheless endeavored to press on and strike the true heart of Mamluk power. The long walk to Cairo began with a three-day march to Damanhur, across a burning desert. Clothed in wool with limited water, the infantry marched first. One officer recalled, After an hour's march, the soldier is overcome by the heat and the weight he carries. He unburdens himself, throwing down his rations, focusing only on the present with no thought of tomorrow. When thirst comes, he finds no water. That is why, in the horrors of this scene, you saw soldiers die of thirst, of starvation, of heat, while their comrades, on seeing this suffering, blew out their own brains. Bedouin raiders stalked these dunes, dragged away French stragglers who dared lag behind. General Dumas rode out to pay their ransom, whereupon Napoleon learned that any prisoners who hadn't been decapitated had been violated. Dumas and Napoleon trekked across the desert on horseback and met the weary infantry in Damanhur. The way to Cairo was a hundred miles more, and most of the cavalry still lacked horses. In full view of his troops, Dumas cast down his hat and stomped it. He shouted that the French government had deported them all on an aimless suicide mission because they feared the rise of Napoleon. Napoleon had, in fact, orchestrated the expedition himself, but Alex Dumas' concerns about the mission's practicality had struck a chord. In the dead hours of the night, several generals gathered in his tent. In hushed voices, the men decried the absurdity of taking a desert in July. They considered confronting Napoleon and refusing to carry on past Cairo. The march to Cairo brought new afflictions. Dysentery eviscerated the troops, and trachoma left thousands blind. On July 21st, after a 13-hour march, the battle for Egypt appeared before them. Across the sands stood 10,000 Mamluks, 
drawn up on horseback with glistening swords. Napoleon rallied his troops and gestured towards the ancient horizon. Soldiers, from the height of these pyramids, forty centuries look down upon you. Napoleon pulled his troops into infantry squares. The French fired at the Mamluk stampede from all directions. Within a few hours, Napoleon stood victorious on a smoldering battlefield. Generals Dumas and Joachim Mirha chased the last remnants of Mamluk rule into the desert. French scholars were free to scour pharaonic monuments and tombs and study the long-forgotten script that covered ancient relics. Napoleon conferred on Cairo the benefits of a modern French republic. Egalitarian laws were accompanied by hospitals, sanitation measures, and bakeries. At the same time, Napoleon made no effort to infringe on the lucrative slave trade that had flourished under the Mamluks. He was troubled by another matter, one that he now decided to confront. Napoleon stormed into the quarters of his cavalry commander and stared up at Alex Dumas. You have preached sedition. Beware that I don't fulfill my duty, for your six feet and one inch would not prevent you from being shot in two hours. Dumas requested that he be allowed to return to France, and Napoleon gave his consent. The night sky over Alexandria awoke with fire. The British had attacked the stationary French armada and exploded the ammunition stocked in Napoleon's ship, Orient. The men aboard were incinerated. The decimation of the French fleet effectively left Dumas and the other troops stranded in North Africa, with a population that began to resent French rule. Napoleon had proclaimed himself an emissary of Mohammed. Many Egyptians greeted his claims with derision and his secular reforms with reluctance. Religious leaders now decried the French as infidels and ordered the death of all Frenchmen. Cairo erupted. In the bloody conflict, Dumas took a rebel headquarters and helped subdue the revolt. In early 1799, Alex Dumas hired a multi-sailor for transport back to France, along with a few dozen wounded French soldiers. He provided extra funds to make repairs to the vessel. General Dumas climbed aboard with grinding bones and weary muscles. He longed to return to Marie-Louise and his daughter. As the vessel drifted north, the deck trembled and groaned. The hull dipped deeper into the sea. Water flooded in. The multi-sailor had apparently pocketed the repair money Dumas had given him. Dumas ordered cannons and horses thrown overboard to lighten the burden. An ocean storm thrashed their unsound vessel about. The crew elected to turn into the nearest allied port, the Italian city of Taranto. Leary officials met them on the docks, placed them in custody. Without explanation, they moved Dumas to a stone cell. Days passed, weeks. A barred window afforded him an ever-present view of his armed captors, and let in the rain and coastal winds, which dampened the straw on the stone bench he used for a bed. Each day the jailers came by to deliver a few biscuits, 
and each day Dumas begged them to speak with the governor and resolve whatever misunderstanding had provoked his imprisonment. The guards mocked him. Taranto had, in fact, fallen into enemy hands, a counter-revolutionary movement called the Holy Faith Army. In their attempts to restore the local king, the army massacred those they suspected of dissent, liberals and Jews. Dumas used his outdoor time to pace in the sun and to think, until one day the guards came to bolt his cell door shut. The dark months seemed to bleed together in squalid isolation. Dumas lost sight in one eye, hearing in one ear, and half of his face became paralyzed. The release of death felt close. He wrote often to Marie-Louise, divulging paranoid suspicions that his captors were poisoning him. His jailers apparently never sent his letters. So the world passed into the 19th century, and French wars raged on without Dumas. Upon invading Italy, General Mirhaus scattered enemies and secured the release of all French prisoners of war. In March of 1801, Alex Dumas limped out of prison, 39 years old and broken. In Paris, Dumas reunited with Marie-Louise in belated embrace. The revolutionary France for which Dumas had fought died while he was behind bars when Napoleon returned from his desert campaign and staged a coup. For all the stability this new state offered, its veneer of democracy took the feeble forms of contrived rhetoric and useless legislative bodies. Napoleon Bonaparte was its de facto dictator. At home, Dumas doted on his young daughter and regained his health. His family was suffering. His years in prison had gone unpaid despite the promises of the French military. He wrote to Napoleon, I hope that you will not allow the man who shared your work and your dangers to languish like a beggar. The letters went unanswered. As Dumas had come to expect, the ideals publicly espoused by Napoleon were frequently tools for personal and political expediency. Napoleon admitted as much. I finished the war in Vendée by making myself a Catholic. I established myself in Egypt by converting to Islam. I won mines in Italy by becoming a reactionary. If I governed the Jews, I would rebuild the Temple of Solomon. Though he preached egalitarianism, Napoleon's rise had been supported by the formerly slave-owning planter class. He now ordered the recapture of Saint-Domingue and the extermination of its ongoing slave uprising. Napoleon took an erratic approach to slavery. He guarded abolition wherever popular, but may have planned to reinstitute slavery in Saint-Domingue, and maintained it in regions that had fallen out of French hands at the time of the 1794 abolition decree. To consolidate these moves, Napoleon reasserted French white identity. He banned all former officers and soldiers of color from living in or around Paris. Dumas was obligated to apply for special authorization to continue living in his own home. Napoleon's government closed French borders to people of color 
and blocked mixed marriages. Dumas longed to return to the battlefield, but a military with segregated infirmaries offered no opportunities for a person of color to command largely white troops. Napoleon ignored Dumas' offers to fight. Dumas' family was intact for now. He welcomed a son, Alexander, into the world in the summer of 1802. In the birthplace of General Dumas, Saint-Domingue, former slaves made headway in their struggle. In 1804, they at last drove out the French and established the independent nation of Haiti. The loss did not prevent Napoleon from crowning himself Emperor of France that year, as he fended off the combined armies of Europe. Around this time, a heaviness gripped Dumas, an implacable exhaustion, agony in his abdomen. His toddler, Alexander, accompanied him to the doctor in Paris, and later recalled a meeting between his father and General Mirha to discuss the care of the Dumas family in the near future. Soon after, my father grew weaker, went out less often, rarely mounted a horse, stayed more in his room, took me on his knees with greater sadness. In 1806, Thomas Alexander Dumas died of stomach cancer. His family sank into poverty. Marie-Louise wrote incessantly to Napoleon concerning the military pension owed to widows of generals. A sympathetic general finally mentioned her case to Napoleon directly. The emperor stomped and said, I forbid you ever to speak to me of that man. So Marie-Louise took a job in a tobacco shop, all the while struggling to support the young Alexander. She often spoke to him of his father, the stories of his Herculean exploits in battle. General Thomas Alexander Dumas had lived in a season of revolution, when men began to champion the idea of universal rights and liberty. He died in that vast chasm between their grand promises and bleak reality. The young Alexander became one of the most accomplished novelists in history, in sprawling adventures, he imagined a world not so unlike the one for which his father had fought. A world where villainy was met at every corner with justice and truth. If you really appreciate the content we're putting out here at History Dose, if you think our videos are unique or offer some special insight, you can support us by subscribing and hitting that notification bell. And maybe consider donating to our Patreon account. Anything will help from 25 cents to $5 to 15 if you're feeling generous. Never it matters and even more when you feel like it doesn't 
protect you so you never feel like you wasn't No, I'm right alongside you, here but that or I'm behind you But always got you, end of discussion, nothing means more First one to offer his shoulders for what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world until I seen yours And know that I ain't see a better view yet I'm with whatever, so don't ever you fret Know that you covered, not a hurdle or a heartbreak To change what a partake Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway My job is to aware you, fully loaded, prepare you For all of the above that I'm never letting get near you But still in all, give you every advantage I found Couldn't find a better fit for them, along with my crown And since the baton was passed, I've been down Cause failing's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all my message to any dad, man, first off, know that, yeah, it, it is a hard job, but it's the greatest job in the world. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't change anything about it. Everything you're doing from here on out, if it didn't have purpose before, now it has purpose. It's the most important thing you'll ever do. Just be a dad.